Welcome to the Undraped Artist Podcast. You should know that this episode was also recorded in video and can be watched on our website at theundrapedartist.com and also on YouTube at the Undraped Artist Podcast. Also, check out our show notes to learn more about today's guest. I hope you enjoy the show. Micah Christensen, welcome back to the Undraped Artist Podcast. Thank you. I am thrilled to be here. We get to talk today about one of my favorite artists of all time. Some would argue the greatest artist of all time, but that's going to be controversial anytime we, we put a superlative <laughs> yeah. on something. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Didn't we say that about Soroya? No, you said some yeah, would say. Yeah, but I really yeah. mean it this time. You mean I really it mean time. it this time. Okay, so who is it? <laughs> Diego Velasquez, who is a Spanish artist who lived at the um, end of the 16th to middle of the 17th century. He was a contemporary with uh, Caravaggio, Rubens, um, uh, Franz Hals, Rembrandt. And he was arguably the least influential of those figures in his own time, but the most influential after uh, he had died. Really? So. Uh, that's that's also that's why I say arguably I'm gonna I'm gonna couch everything very carefully. That yeah, Rembrandt was in that list. That's pretty. That's right. It's a pretty big that's statement. Right. Yeah, it is a big statement, and I I think I'm gonna qualify it a little bit today. Um, for my money, uh, Velasquez, and I know that I'm biased, is um is the greatest of 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 all his contemporaries when it comes to um brevity and i'll tell you what i mean by that as we go along okay but so why are you biased tell me why you're biased first it has something to well, do with your training i'm I guessing think, not not necessarily i think that maybe it is that's a good question you know velasquez became an obsession for people in the 19th century and i think part of that is because there are whether you know it or not you've inherited various strains of of, of what you like or don't like in art, what your, your, your tradition is that you're part of. Are you a naturalist? Are you a classicist? Are you, these are terms that become muddier and muddier over time. But at a time when there were very strong schools of thought in art about there's only this way and this way, Velasquez showed up in the visual world for people gave them a totally different alternative and changed how people thought of him mm -hmm. without without velasquez we wouldn't have sergeant um the, the, a lot of the impressionists just the entire school of impressionism arguably wouldn't exist we wouldn't have the zorns the 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 soroyas the boldinis uh an entire class of naturalism that we think of today because velasquez provided um, an alternative to the way people saw the world in the 19th century. Hmm. And, um, and, and I think that as, as we talk through things, uh, and I, we look at his work, you'll see what I mean. Okay. But first I think it's important to put him within his time and place. So I've got a map that I sent you. Can you pull that map up? Yeah, I can. 
Okay. So this is a, you know, there's not, this is just Spain as it is today. And you have to remember that the world of the 16th century was largely Spanish. Um, there's a, there's a French saying that was before the, the, the 1800s, God was Spanish. And the reason why God was Spanish is because the Spanish controlled Spain, um, most of Germany and the Netherlands, Naples and Italy, almost all of Latin America, and the Philippines. They had the most populous empire in the history of the world up to that point. And almost all of it was controlled from Madrid, which is in the center of that of, 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 of Spain right there. But if you look down in that map to the bottom left of that yellow part, you see a little river by Cadiz and it goes up to Seville or Sevilla. That's where Velasquez is from. And that's really key because there was so much wealth coming from the Americas when Velasquez was alive as a young man. Um, there were what we called the treasure ships, and it mostly wasn't gold. It was mostly silver that was coming out of the New World and was going back to Spain. And it would it, it, there was so much silver that it it increased the supply of money in the world by sixfold. Hmm. That's that's hard to to categorize in our world today, but it destabilized. China, it destabilized Japan, and it was all arriving in Spain and going out to the rest of the world from there. And in Seville is where they would unload those ships. That's where Velasquez was. It was really the Renaissance of Spain started largely in Seville, where Velasquez was. And he was in a really key place in time where there was more money arguably concentrated than anywhere in the history of the world up to that point. So he's a young man. There's a lot of debate um, as to where he actually comes from. When he was later in the king's service, they kind of invented a noble uh, ancestry for him. Mm -hmm. But he really, he didn't, he didn't come from anywhere particularly special. He was just from outside of Seville. And he gets into the... Uh, uh, the studio, the atelier of a man named Francisco Pacheco. And that's the next image that I have for you. Uh, Pacheco is a man of many talents. He's mostly a thinker, but he was considered one of the great artists of the time. Now, when you look at this work, what is your, what, what is your take on the technical level of this? Well, I mean, I'm not. <laughs> that's you. That's a question where I'm just going to get thrown under the bus for comments. I, no, I'm, I'm not impressed still, with it. I'm asking you knowing, yeah. knowing that you're looking at it with your eyes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's not Velasquez. That's for dang sure. So this is something you have to remember is that this is a time when, yes, they're in this very powerful place, but they're not Italians. And the Italians have most of the artists at this point. Okay. And the kind of work that Pacheco is mostly being, Francisco Pacheco, who is Velasquez's teacher, is being asked to do, are religious devotional images for wealthy patrons. He's also being asked to paint statues for religious festivals. And, you know, they're, 
they're they're well composed, interesting to look at, but they are very static. Yeah. And very very linear. Um and and um Velasquez comes into this world and Pacheco becomes his father-in-law by the way. He marries Pacheco's daughter. No kidding. And Pacheco immediately recognizes that Velasquez is a whole nother level. So go to the next image, which is Velasquez's image about the same time that he did. <laughs> of, that of, sucks. Of, uh, so you so must have a, compare, is there a jealous father-in-law here? Or? Yeah. He's only about 18 or 19 years old when he does this. Holy crap. And, and Velasquez is a whole nother level um, I'll point out some things, but I want you to point out the things that you noticed as compared to Pacheco that are the difference in what he's doing or just an overall feel between the two of them. Well, Pacheco, to me, almost feels like a like a cartoon. It's like he, a lot of this stuff's probably a lot made up out of his head. Feels very illustrative. Everything's on the picture plane. Yep. There's not a lot of depth. Um, yep. The babies all the same. They just, yeah, they just look like little made-up baby heads. Although I realized that even um, even Velasquez was struggling painting babies a little bit. Uh -huh. <laughs> but there's yeah. a yeah, and then the fabric. Um, it just yeah, oh, that's it, a big difference. Isn't it? Big difference. This is actually quite well done. It it all feels it all feels like silk or something or. Um, yeah, I mean it's very glossy fabric. Where then you get into this, and it's just wow! Like th those are folds. I, it's it's. I feel like uh, he's really looking hard at the subject. Where these seem yes. more like symbols of people. They're not real people. I mean, was you know, that the difference? Working, was Velasquez the, looking? The, 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 I think it comes down to that. Pacheco's a very sophisticated individual. I mean, he's. He's gathered a lot of a, a lot of great artists, and he's and he's in his um, studio, and he's he's having his own little salons where poets and sculptors and artists are getting together. But he also can't help that he's from a previous generation that comes not from naturalism, but is looking at design from drawing from printed materials. These figures, a lot of them are. He's he's thinking more about symbolism and design, and he's cutting and pasting figures from design books and the way that he's doing things. And Velasquez is posing models, doing things from life. Okay, and that's what we it know looks that like because Pacheco would write about it. Oh, and Pacheco didn't see what he was doing as less sophisticated because Pacheco was thinking about sophistication when it came to symbolism and design, not thinking about it in terms of life or not life. So this is an important time in Velasquez's production. He's only about 18 or 19, and he's, he's creating these images that we don't know exactly why he's departing from the work of his, of his mentor, Pacheco. And then Pacheco gets an in with the royal court in Madrid. And this is important because Madrid has the most powerful ruler on earth, and that ruler is commissioning works from Italy and from the Netherlands. So he's got Rubens and he's got Titian and he's got a bunch of other great artists 
who are doing work for the palaces. But none of those artists that are the best artists in the world, who are not in Spain, are able to come to Spain and do what a court painter does, which is the main job of a court painter is to do portraits of the royal family, especially the marriageable age daughters and sons, to send out to other royal households. So Velasquez, he gets the job of doing the portraits of the royal children, especially the women, to be sent off to other royal courts. And that's the next image. This is, this is the main work that he does for a long time. This is, this is his main job. Hmm. So he's seen the king and the royal family on, on an everyday basis. And these images are very formal. And they are deliberately over the top. So here she's got the most sumptuous clothing on, the most unbelievable hair and costume and work that's being done with her. It's not complicated isn't the right word for it, but it's not the things that we've been seeing earlier. It's not multifigural, right? It's not, it's not meant to be observational in a way that captures somebody in a candid way at all. Right. It's, it's there to make her look like a million bucks or a billion bucks or a trillion bucks, which is probably more like it, a trillion bucks. Mm -hmm. And if you compared this to other images that were done by court painters, they are, they're so flat and boring. And Velasquez at least adds some life to a lifeless genre of art that he has to be a part of. What he's doing at the same time for court members for Im that images are not meant to be seen outside of the court are the next image that I sent you. I'm still so floored that he figured this out on his own. What? That he figured what out? How to paint like this. I mean, as far as we know. So this is a... This is a young boy who travels with the court, who's got some, I, I don't know if he's got um, developmental um, issues or not. Um, Velasquez seemed to latch on, and the court seemed to gather people like that occasionally. But Velasquez, this is very different than the image that we just saw. The first one was formal and meant to go outside of the court. And then Velasquez would make for the royal family portraits of their entourage that would be kept for them and that's when you see Velasquez at his most improvisational and best. You know we only have about a hundred no matter depending on how you count it. Velasquez died in his 60s. We only have 110 to 120 pieces that he did. Yeah. And we have one or two drawings, but they're disputed. So you we're going to look at this at, at, in this um at this discussion at 10% of all his works. You know? That's a lot. It's, it's crazy. That's a lot, a lot and, of and yeah, his work in one little conversation. I mean, I mean is, relative, yeah, I mean, that he did so few paintings, I mean. Yeah, you know, so when you a, see this work, what do you, what do you notice? The thing I notice about this is the thing that I've always been impressed by with him, and that is that hundreds of years before the camera, he, may, he manages to make it look candid. I mean, this kid's Hit it, head is tilted back. He's got a smile. No one painted yeah. smiles before the camera. 
I mean, very few yeah. people. I'm not aware very of any. Few. Yeah, and it, it looks like he got a snapshot. The Laughing Cavalier, which is by Franz Halls, is another one that was done about the same time. Yeah, Franz Halls was also uh, quite impressive, but it was so rare. It was very rare, and it does. It's it it struck people at the time who were in the court as incredibly observational um, and candid. Um, one of the things that is very popular in Spain at the time, this is the golden age of theater and stages, and people are going to the theater a lot. And Velazquez's paintings, some of the most recent scholarship is showing that he's almost making these, staging these paintings with the light of being on a stage in the 17th century. Mm -hmm. um, so he's lighting the figures with kind of a, uh, a, a, a strong front light. He's he's got a backdrop behind them, um, and he's another thing that's interesting about him. That's that um, I think is the missing link is that people are trying to connect between Caravaggio, Rembrandt, Franz Hals, and Velasquez is how the palette changes. Um, it goes from Rembrandt's very colorful. Crimsons, blues, um, and and uh, yellows and bright whites, which some of that can be explained by access to those colors through the 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 trade in in pigments. But Velasquez had access to all of that, being part of the most powerful court, and he deliberately chooses a very muted palette and non gemstone. Um, colors for hmm. the majority of his works and i think that that lens that restricted palette also affects what's realism it makes it look more natural hmm. i think it makes it feel less technicolor yeah yeah i mean a lot of artists today use a limited palette and and i i mean it maybe not for to make it look more real but i think maybe that's sort of a side effect of it um yeah, I mean, when I think of some of the colors that Rembrandt, that not Rembrandt, but uh, Rubens used, it's almost like he his work looks like what we would call fantasy work today because of that bright palette, that fanciful colors. And this is, for whatever reason, this is what naturalism looks more like, mm. even though we've got a lot of those bright colors in real life. But even his whites aren't the whitest. And these have been really well cleaned and taken care of. Even at the time, he wasn't always using pure lead white on his pieces. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I wonder why he chose to reject those colors. So there's an interesting image that I'm going to show you next, which has two paintings. Not, um, is, it, is it next, I think? Yes. It has two paintings side by side. There's a reason why I'm showing this to you because, and I'm going to try and go through it fairly quickly, but these are, this is important for Velasquez's development. It's very important. On the left, you have a painting by Titian, who's in Venice. And that painting was commissioned by the King of Spain to be delivered to the court in Madrid. The person delivering it is Peter Paul Rubens. No way. And his painting yeah. is the one on the right. Mm. So what's happening is, is that Rubens goes from the, from Italy, taking shipment of a shipment of paintings to Madrid, 
And he stays there for, I think it's eight months, and maybe a little more, a little less than that. And his job is to unroll all of the Italian-ordered paintings, touch them up, and then do other paintings for the King of Spain while he's there before heading on to Amsterdam. Um, Rubens is another discussion we can have. He's one of my favorite characters and artists of all time. But what you're seeing here is the difference between an Italian artist on the left who's older and working with more of a late Renaissance approach to things to Rubens on the right who's working with a newer sensibility and then what Velasquez takes from it is kind of mind blowing. And I'm going to show can you. We tell, I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to skim over this. Why is? Why did I don't Rubens? Want to either. I just wanted to give you the context. Oh, okay, okay. So we'll come back to this then. Yeah. Okay. Good. No, 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 no. I did. No, that's good. Let's stop. Let's go back. Go back. Oh, okay. So he totally knocked him off. I don't understand. So he had these paintings for eight months, and he sat there he and did. copied them. And yeah, because you have to think of it in a couple. You have to think of it in a couple of ways. One is that there was there was nothing. So the first ten years of Rubens' career was copying other artists, and it wasn't seen as ripping them off. It was it was seen as if the the most important thing that an artist could contribute was the idea, and if other artists did a copy of it, it was still seen as the original artist's work, not the second artist's work. Weird, right? and so that's. That's one way of thinking about it is that Ruben's entire job and how he got the job he did was by, by being a good copyist. Yeah. But the second thing is, is that Ruben's is also somebody who we know, unlike Velasquez, who we have like no writings of Velasquez. We have a lot of interviews and writings and, and, and contemporary accounts of Ruben's. Ruben's was deliberately copying, doing master copies to try and learn how to paint better all the time. Yeah. And he hugely admired Titian. And I think what's interesting here, like one of my favorite moments in this whole thing is what what uh, Rubens changes. The guy. So notice how yeah. he's got triangle of the figures, right? Just from a narrative perspective. Yeah. Eve, who's on the right, is looking up at the apple. And then Adam is looking at her, right? Yeah. Trying to stop her. In the Titian version... They're both looking at the apple, and it's not as much of a circle of gestures and and interaction. That's one yeah. level. Yeah. But another another level is just the 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 difference in how Rubens is the equivalent of. I mean, I kind of think of it as like what happens from the jump of the the fifty year difference between Titian and Rubens is the difference between claymation and CGI in movies. Yeah, I know that figure, you that could, male figure is so much better. Yeah, you you just get a huge leap. Titian is the best one in his generation, and then Rubens takes over and is the best in his generation. Except and he na except he copied the female almost verbatim. Yeah. Yeah, except look at look at the elbows and look at the the complication of the transitions of values in the arm. In the lower, in the in the upper yeah, arm, yeah, yeah, and, and to me that works it's, on the male model. I've never been a fan of what he does with female models, like all the bubbly yeah, muscles. Yeah, I mean, look at her yeah. shin. Look what he does to her shin. 
It's true. It's just, I totally agree with you. Yeah. And it's just totally bizarre. But as, yeah, but everything else about her is, it's almost like he traced her. I mean, it's exactly the same. But he just put his, there there are some. No, go ahead. Go ahead. What were you going to say? I was just going to say, he just added his, his style of um, morphology, just had to add some bumps and dents in there. It's true. It's true. And it's, you know, Rubens is an interesting person to discuss, but I think what I could tell you that is important for this Velasquez discussion is that Rubens had traveled the world and had lived in Rome and he and Velasquez hang out for six to eight months together Mm -hmm. every day. They share the same studio. And at the end of it, Velasquez paints one work while he's in Madrid and then gets permission to go to Italy. And those are two jumps. So the the next work is the work that he paints while he's with Rubens sharing a studio. This is the other one with the smile that is mind-blowing. This guy's face is incredible. It is. You know what? I personally have five paintings of artists who copied this painting from the 1850s until the 1940s. I've got five different artists. No kidding. Yeah. One of these days you'll come over to my house and I'll show them to you. That's awesome. This one's called um, the drunkards or the festival of Bacchus. Bacchus is the God of wine. And he's the figure that looks like an old Roman figure with the grape leaves on his head. And then there's another figure arguably behind him. That's a fawn. So, uh, you know, or a satyr. And it, the the it, the idea that that Velasquez does his first true multifigural painting while Rubens is there is really interesting, hmm. and it feels like he also takes a leap in putting them in physical space together. Yeah, it's still not where he's going to be in the next image, which happens two years later. But this is a major leap in how doing a multifigural work. And by the way, one of the things I love about this is that I had to tell you that Rubens um, was in the room when he did this mm-hmm. because it doesn't look like a Rubens. And that's one of the things I love about it is that Velasquez is in his t- late 20s, early 30s, and the most famous painter in the world comes to share a studio with him and is teaching him things and Velasquez is still his own man. Yeah. He's still doing his own thing, right? Yeah. And he's better in Do my opinion. Do you have any opinion. observations about this piece, things that you like or don't like or, or changes that you see in his work or things that stay the same? Um, well, while the, and I don't see this as a problem, but while the figures are sort of like literally in a space they couldn't be in where they're sitting inside of one another almost, yeah, that's actually yeah. not, that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think multi-figure painting, sometimes that's necessary in order to create a good composition and artists do it on purpose all the time and he yeah. may have done it on purpose. But what I noticed because you mentioned that they were together is by, is contrasting the subtlety in, with the anatomy of this figure and this figure, that arm and that knee uh, and contrasting it with yeah. these exaggerated bumps and dents that Ruben would do. It's just oh, so, yeah. it's so sophisticated. And Look he at was the figure in the, in the studio. 
Oh yeah. That's yeah. crazy. And, and look and you wouldn't confuse that with a Rubens figure. Oh ever. heck no. And look at the and then look at the sh- the, the 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 shade the 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 figure in the back that's behind Bacchus that's leaning. Yeah, his that's arm, shoulder. The transitions of shadows on his pectoralis muscle going down to his to his belly. I mean, it is that foreshortening and that shade on his left arm, the figure in the back with his left arm that goes from the hand back. I mean, mm-hmm. there's some real mm-hmm. I mean, he does this very short like only a few years after he does that that egg painting. You know, we're talking just a few years. Well, the other thing is he feels I've always thought this about him in that he's the first naturalist, the naturalist before naturalist, because and again, it kind of goes back to the smile. But it's everything about his work. It's it's uh, it's just so candid. This guy's face, this guy's face. He's got this smirk looking up at him. He's got this one eyebrow lifted. Yeah, it feels like an almost like a naturalist painting. In that way, now, I'm going to tell you something. When we see the next painting, don't pull up the next painting yet. Okay. The next painting he did two years later. He goes to Italy. He gets permission from the king because he tells them, "Look, I really have things that I need to learn." He basically says that we learn from Pacheco's Pacheco, his father-in-law, who's writing a book on this. That Velasquez, after being with Rubens, feels compelled to go to Italy to see and be influenced himself. So he goes and he brings he brings back two paintings with him, and this next one, the Forged Vulcan, mm-hmm. is what happens after two years of work in Italy. Yeah, this is amazing. Now, the amazing thing about this is if you just look at the difference between those two, the painting we saw before, mm-hmm. the painting we saw before really only has two full figures that you see. Right. The rest of them are all sheets. Somebody's behind a cloak. Someone's kind of pasted behind another. Yeah. yeah. Can't, they're all crowded together. They don't fill in space. Then you get two years later, and it's almost as if he's deliberately challenging himself. Mm. And he's kept some of the same things that make him great. One of the things that he takes from his childhood that he's great at is the still life elements. I mean, look at those hammers in the foreground that are resting against the anvils. Look at the pot. It's on the fireplace mantle in the back. Look at the chains. Look at the armor. That's all stuff that he had on some level, right? Mm-hmm. But now he's got four, almost five, single figures with plenty of breathing space between them, all different people, all standing in physical space, all at a different rhythm and angle, all interacting with one another. It is like he went from doing, in my opinion, algebra to doing calculus like this is a whole nother level of interaction just the just mm-hmm. like if you look at like the the their weight their hips their shoulders and how they're all at different angles to one another it's there's just it's it's an unbelievable change of 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 where he was to where he is now yeah it's incredible and now i'm going to be redundant here i know i keep talking about this but look at that guy's face I know. Well, and that's if you zoom in on that and and see it in real life, it is the most true feeling. Most, and you know what? The the best thing about that face is is what it has to do with the narrative. So the narrative here, and this is also very Velasquez, is that in the stories of Ovid, who was a um, 
you know, a writer of of uh, in uh, in Rome about the uh, the very myth mythological stories of the gods. Vulcan is um, is the the blacksmith of the gods. He makes all the weapons and all the tools. And he's married to Venus, who is the uh, you know she's she's the goddess of love, but she's sleeping with Mars, the god of war. So Mercury shows up. He's the one on the left to the God's forge and Vulcan is the old man. And he's also, we know he walks with a limp and is physically, um, uh, he's strong, but he's, he's got a body that's a little twisted. Mercury says to, to Vulcan, your wife is currently sleeping in bed with Mars. Let's go get her. So what you're seeing is the reaction of everybody in the forge to the news that Venus is cheating on her husband. Hmm. And that's why the guy's mouth is agape, right? Because he's like, oh, my gosh. But it's a perfect Velasquez moment and not a Rubens moment, not any but not a Titian mm -hmm. moment where you have one figure that looks like a heavenly messenger and everyone else that looks like they're, even though they're gods and working at God's forge, they are everyday people and, mm. and observe from real life. That is 100% what Velasquez does. Wow. Yeah, that's an amazing painting. Hmm. It's, uh, there's very little underdrawing in this painting. We don't know how Velasquez made works exactly because we don't have a lot of drawings. There were a lot of theories for a long time um, we think that he generally did very basic outline drawings and then did the rest in paint and that he did studies leading up to it and that a lot of those were destroyed um, either by him or in a fire that happened in the um, palace um, about 100 years later. Oh, see, but I'd always understood we... that he worked directly on the canvas, but is that yeah, not that's necessarily... the theory. And, and, you know, people... People come up occasionally, they'll do radiography and they'll find some underdrawing, hmm. but and they'll occasionally find a, a study that they attribute to him. But it's mostly believed that he did 99% of the work just on the canvas. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. So I, the people of that time must have been mind blown to see this, I oh, mean, because were. yeah, because he, his, uh, the others and other artists in Spain weren't doing anything even close to this. No, they weren't. Um, he and and uh, you know he kind of stays a closed secret because everybody's sending things to Spain. Spain, Spain isn't sending things elsewhere. Mm. So even though Italian artists are becoming famous by having their works um, circulated. Velasquez's work isn't circulated to the rest of the world for really like 200 years later. And so the people in Spain are enjoying and marveling over his works, but he doesn't have a long, he doesn't have an influence outside of Spain in his own lifetime. Hmm. So he, he's doing this and it's mind blowing. But I mean, go to the next image. This next image is the most over the top image I think he ever did from a court perspective and composition perspective. Wow. So this is called The Surrender at Breda. And he was one of four artists, I believe, who were court artists that were asked to commemorate this moment, which was a major victory. Um, well, it was symbolically a major victory of the Catholics over the Protestants 
in the Netherlands. Breda is the place where they are. And he had to do some things in order to make this work. So one of his requirements was he actually had to show the town of Breda in real life. Like he had to show what it looked like. Mm-hmm. And he was given maps and drawings. Then he had to do portraits of the major figures who were there because they were going to be there at the unveiling and it was going to be in the king's palace where this victory was going to be seen every day as a symbol of the king's power. And there were three or four renditions of this that were done by other people. And I guarantee that none of them put a horse in the foreground and covered up a huge number of people. A horse's butt in the foreground. Yeah, which to me (laughs) is one of the most brilliant effing choices ever. (laughs) It's pretty bold. What it does does is it, it turns the composition, which could be otherwise. I mean, it's so hard to do multiple figures. He was he was required. I mean, even look at like a few of these figures. Mm-hmm. They were clearly like in portraits of people who the king said, "Oh, he has to be in there." Right. We don't have a. We don't, he can't be here to model for you, so you have to do it from from a, a portrait of somebody else. Right. right. And so the way that he solves it is he creates a circular composition within this flat composition, where you see the horse's rear end on one side, you see that it's turning, then you follow its head around all of those other figures, and then you come to the other horse's head, who's looking at you, mm-hmm. and then you come around the back and shoulders of the other guy, and then you come into the open circle of the two. So he basically takes what would be a bunch of horizontal lines, and with that horse, makes it a little more acceptable and tolerable because otherwise it's just like I was forced to do all these portraits. Yeah. And you know, what's really interesting about that is that he, he takes, you know, most of us, when we think of composition, it's like, okay, we think of uh, moving the eye on the picture plane. So we'll, you might do a diagonal in order to get your eye into the upper corner or, you know, a horizontal to move your eye over here and so on and so forth. But what he's done is he's created a, a movement that goes into the canvas. It's like yes. you're, you're like following the back of the horse and then you're going back into the canvas. It's almost like he's yes. designing sculpture, on, uh, but it's not. It's a two-dimensional painting. And the painting is almost life-size. I think it is life-size, actually. Hmm. So, so you're looking at this and you feel like you're standing in the opening yeah. between the horse and that figure. One of the things that blows my mind about him is how he chooses subtle things and gestures in order to draw your interest. That center and the real, the real visual connection and, and love between those two men in the middle, the figure on the right, who just has the most candid loving, generous look on his face while he puts his arm on the shoulder of that other man and the man who's leaning forward holding the key to the city. And then, almost like a Disney cell, which has, like, the foreground, the middle ground, the background, Velasquez has got, like, a bunch of figures right behind that arm. Mm -hmm. Right? And then he's got a map behind that. And he... And the spears that are in the middle ground on on the right hand side are all dark, but the spears that are all in the in the middle far ground behind those two figures in the center are all white, and that's how you know they're there, right? Mm. And oh, you mean it, here, it's, it's, here, yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. He's got a lot of really complicated choices that he's making when it comes to color, to temperature, to um, making things in the foreground very detailed, and then trying to maintain the detail in the back that's the map. It's it's almost like he, he the foreground is a little technicolor. Um, but he deliberately makes that figure brown on the left and the horse brown, and then keeps it technic um, um, technicolor in that middle foreground. And then everything in the back goes to white, brown, green, and then finally blue in the very back. Mm -hmm. And it's it's a it's a real it's it's a masterclass in how to control the eye when you are forced to do a very busy work of art, super busy. He never quite does anything this busy. This is the busiest he does. And it, it's, it's as court painter, he's required to do it in the way that he's required to do it in, in the sense that he has to have the map, the moment, and all of those figures who all have to have their face showing at the moment. That they were there. Do, do you know who um, some of these characters are? Like, like this guy on the corner here or on the edge? Do you know who that is? That's a self-portrait. I, self I knew it. I yeah. was wondering. I didn't want yeah, to. That's him. Okay. That's too cool. Yeah, that's a self-portrait. It's cool, isn't it? Uh-huh. I thought that might be, I but I wasn't that. sure. Okay. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. It's a really cool self-portrait. It is. Yeah. It is. And it's cool. You got a bunch of characters here. That are Dude, kind of looking, looking at the viewers. If you grow out your mustache a little more, you could pull. A I'm going for it, man. I'm doing the Velasquez. <laughs> yeah, I, but anyway, yeah, it's cool how he's got a few of these characters looking at the viewer. I mean, that's something that's been done for centuries. Where the I, and I love and, that to, to how the how the characters bring you into the painting. But the other thing I notice about it that's really so hard to do, and he and um it's really beautifully done is combining observational painting with imaginative painting yeah yeah because a lot of this stuff yeah. back here is just out of his head it's just imagination i'm assuming i mean he's got maps that are somewhat black and white but it's not like well yeah but they're not three-dimensional they're, they're not they're I mean, not receding right and the way that he's inventing smoke from the recent battle coming up is right. entirely composite driven and, and right. imaginative right He's totally making that right and he I mean, seems them together pretty well it's i i don't know how it, he, it would be so interesting to see his process and what the difference was between him kind of laying things out uh, as a premier ponce a little thumbnail drawing mm -hmm. and then saying oh to the model why don't you to the model on the left why don't you have that staff leaning on an angle against your shoulder? Because then, you know, that pulls that pulls it in more to the direction that leads us into the center again. Right. Or did he, you know, and the horse. That that's a pretty unusual horse pose. I know? never would have thought and, to do a horse like that. I don't that's no really bold. I don't I've never seen a horse put into a painting like that. Mm -mm. And it's brilliant. But if you had if you had seen that, somebody would have said, oh, why are you just showing me the hindquarters of the horse? Who cares? Take the horse out. 
I'd love to see but, it if the yeah. horse was flipped around and it was still moving in that direction, but the face was coming forward. If it would have the same effect, I don't think it would. No, it wouldn't because the top I don't think of the head would, either, would be. I think that, yeah. I think not seeing his face, the face of the horse re- makes you think into the interior of where the horse is going. Well, plus the arc is going from low, lower middle yeah. to upper right. It would be going this direction. So obviously that wouldn't work. I mean, you can yeah. almost see what the nobles are saying in this if they were to if they were to look at the painting and say that horse's ass took more of a of a of a of a of real estate in that painting than that horse's ass who I hate in the painting. But at least, like, <laughs> you know, it yeah. was, but it's one of those moments where you can imagine that they were like, "Why are you taking up so much real estate?" This is the brilliance of Velasquez: is that Velasquez makes these kinds of idiosyncratic choices which in isolation don't always make sense, but in the totality, make it feel natural, make it feel like you're actually, right? Well, and that's another thing is about the natural nature of it is, and it's related, I think, to the smiles and the candid nature of the other paintings that we've seen by making a decision like this and this sort of randomly placed horse, which is also kind of weird. I don't, I mean that, I don't mean that, I mean weird as in unexpected. That it, it almost yeah. looks like a candid shot where you didn't pose people. So the whole painting, it, it almost, it creates this feel that it's not posed. And I'm sure that it was very carefully worked out. Well, of course out, it but was. It, it, I mean, even, even when you look at that figure who's looking down at his, next to the horse who's facing us, to the left of that figure, is a man who's not even looking at the main action, but is looking down at his hand, which is making a gesture. Oh yeah. And you see how bright the white is on it, the shadow falling across his chest, how warm his skin is, the man's shoulder that's on his left hand. I mean, you think, huh, that looks like a camera moment before there were cameras before. That's I mean, exactly what I'm like, saying. Yeah. It's, it's unbelievable. And then there's now, this, this guy one, who looks lost. Like he's like, what's happening yeah. here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Now, the painting that is con- that gets picked up by modernists and is becomes the most influential painting of Velasquez in the 20th century is the next painting. Okay. And it takes this this naturalism to a whole nother level. This is one of the most famous paintings in the history of art. It is called Las Meninas or The Courtiers essentially. And it gets picked up in the 20th century more than any other time as the first time that painting is looking at itself as painting rather and, and its own thing rather than as um, painting something else. And what I mean by that is this. Do you see that that um, it looks like a portrait in the far back that's a little bright that has two figures in it? Yeah. It's in the center. It looks like a mirror. That is actually a mirror. Yeah. And we are, as the figure, as as the people standing in front of these paintings, standing in the place of the king and the queen who are having their paintings, their their portraits painted by Velasquez. Hmm. We are looking at the backside of his canvas on the left with Velasquez right next to it, looking at us, holding his brush. And we are seeing our daughter in front of us 
presenting to us her new dress with all of her friends and courtiers who are and the family dog and the little boy who's putting his foot on the dog next to it. And then the head of the court who's called, who's in the back, the, 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 um, uh, what's the name of the, the King's chamber, the, the head of the, he's kind of the right-hand man to the King. This guy. Um, who's in the theory back, not that guy, not that those guy. guys. Those guys are that guy who's coming in to interrupt the portrait to say, you got to leave. We've got business to do. So in other words, Velasquez is putting the viewer, and this is what the 20th century picked up on, in the radical position of being the king and queen. Wow. Seeing what it was like to be in the court, to see Velasquez painting you, to see your kids, to see everybody else coming to visit you and interrupting your day. Right. People have done the math on this perspective-wise, and Velasquez got it 100% correct of where the mirror would be, where the, all the angles fit on the canvas, on the room. I mean, this is Velasquez. Uh, think of the first thing that we saw that had that, we're looking down at those wonky dishes and, and jugs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we see him crowding a bunch of figures together that we can't see all of their figures. But everything is still beautifully observational and naturalistic, but it's just all wonky. Right. right. And then you fast forward, then you go to his work that he did like that, the Bacchus, mm -hmm. and you think, okay, he's getting more comfortable with the multi-figure, but there's no space between them. Then you go to the Forge at Vulcan, mm -hmm. and you realize that he's, he's deliberately showing off there that he can do it. Right. In a way, each of his figures. Right. But it still doesn't, it's not everyday life because those figures wouldn't be perfectly separated in a rhythm the way that they are there. Right. And then you go and and then you go to this which is forced because he's got to get all those portraits in there and all these people and this all these things. Then you come to the next. Then you come to Las Meninas. And Las Meninas is arguably the height of his his career because this is him combining all those observational skills with the learning that he has in Math in mathematics and geometric space, but it also looks naturalistic in the way the figures are. There is a deliberate rhythm. I mean, even if you look at the green of the figure on, kneeling on the left, mm -hmm. then the bright white and the red that's everywhere, and then the figure that's slightly darker with a gray satin who's on slight of an angle that pulls you to the other figure that's in green which then pulls you to the little boy and the little boy is just out of shot, which by the way is, is to me something you don't see a lot until the 19th century that you cut off a figure as if it's a camera shot. Mm. I mean, that's crazy that he cuts yeah. off that figure. Yeah. And, and, and then the dog, which that dog, holy crap. It looks so that real. I know. Look at that hip. Unbelievable. And it is by far the most famous painting that Velasquez did. It's the most famous painting in Spain. It's it's the one that almost everybody goes to see in the 20th century, but it is not the one that when people went to Spain in the 19th century, when Sargent, Soroya, Manet, Ekins, Zorn, and all of those go to Spain, this is not the one they go to see and copy. The next one is, which is one, he did this one in a year, Las Meninas. Mm -hmm. This next one he did over five years. Let me ask you a question before we move on, if that's okay. The, the, yeah. There's, yeah, some seam, there's some seams in this. So this looks like it's probably huge. Yeah. This is, so 
so this is an innovation that um, I didn't talk about that I should have, which is yeah, about 100 years earlier, almost all paintings were done on panel. Right. Which limited the size. Right. And then Titian, who remember that Adam and Eve? Yeah. That, that Rubens brought. He goes to sailmakers and he says, I want to start painting on sails. And he covers those sails, which become the linen canvases that we live, live with today. He covers them in rabbit glue and sizes them and gets them all ready. Which was brilliant. And Velasquez, yeah, it is, isn't it? And then Velasquez does that and he glues three. This painting is, I think, is it eight or 10 feet tall? Is it life size? I think it's eight or yeah, Are the front figures life yes, size? Yes, Yeah, it's a little, it's, it's almost all, the, I think the figures are all life size. And that is what you're seeing over, even though the painting has been basically in the same place for 400 years, the, the, the paint gets thinner and you can see where the canvases were glued together. Yeah. So that's the, that's what you're seeing is the seams of the glue that, that are they're fine it's not going to come apart because they you know they make sure that they're all clean but you just can't and you could if you went back to the forged Vulcan painting you would see a seam on the left hand side where Velasquez didn't think the painting was big enough and he glued on an extra strip yeah so go back to that uh, which one to that painting the Vulcan forge uh, yeah the forged Vulcan yeah. you can see oh yeah I noticed that side. and here too it's, and on the, and on the other side they, they, he imagine him thinking, you know what? I need to add a little bit more to give these figures more breathing room. And that's what he did. Or the other theory is that they needed to fit within a very specific physical space in the building. And so he expanded it to do that too. That's another possibility. Hmm. Well, but it's nice to see that it lasted that long. Yeah. I mean, it's it can't, paintings on, on linen are very stable. They're very, very stable. You know, they're, hmm. 400, 500 years old now, and they're more stable than wood because wood warps over time. It's better than wood. Well, this is my observation. So so he's if she's five feet tall, then this has got to be a 15-foot painting. Let's just assume it's 12 feet or maybe or something, right? But it's, I'll get the exact measurements for you. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm imagining how this was hung, and it seems to me that he really paid attention to hanging this in a big room where when you walk by it, everything that's at eye level is what's important. So it's a, it's, they must be a little smaller than life size because it's 10 and a half feet by nine feet, one inches. But nonetheless, if it's hanging, right, it's going to be hanging. So where this yeah. stuff, because it's 10 feet, this stuff's not going to be at eye level. This stuff's going to be at eye level. No. So no. that would be, yeah, exactly you know, as right. you're walking by it, the whole the painting that matters is right where your eyes are. That's right. Yeah. Hmm. All right. So isn't the next that just painting. The, this is considered by everyone in the 19th century who you admire and I admire the greatest painting that Velasquez ever did. I wouldn't even have recognized and it. The greatest, and um, almost everybody copies it. I've got the ledger of the Prado that I took photographs of. Um, from the 19th century, and I can put Soroya and Sargent and um, five other famous French artists all in the same room on the same day copying this painting. Wow. Because whenever you go into the Prado, you'd have to say, this is where I'm going, and this is the cut painting I'm copying today. And so I've got all of their signatures. This is by far the most copied painting. Let me just tell you the narrative of this painting, because it's very busy. 
until you realize the story that Velasquez is trying to tell. The story is that um, um, there's a mortal woman named Arachne, and then there's the goddess Aphrodite. I got that right? It's Aphrodite? Yes. Um, yes. Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the great weaver. Of, no, 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 no. It's Hera. It's Aphrodite or Hera. I'm sorry. That's everybody okay. who's getting yeah, this. It's a goddess. Whichever one it is, there's a goddess <laughs> yeah. who is who is the greatest weaver among the gods. And Arachne, who is immortal, challenges her to a battle of weaving. Okay, which one's which? And in the um and and in the uh, um story that um Arachne loses and is turned into a spider, and that's where we get spider webs from. Right? <laughs> Arachne. So in this, Velasquez goes to the tapestry factory at the Royal Palace and goes where they're actually weaving cloth. And then in the background, in that very far back, he shows the figures in a tapestry of the gods battling the mortals in the legend. So in real life, he's pretending that the goddess is on the left in the foreground and the mortal is on the right. Okay. And that in the background, it's happening also in the tapestry where the tapestry makers who are Italian have got the same story, but with fanciful costumed over the top figures. And Velasquez is telling the story with people who are real people in the palace. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, and the, the the moment that everybody copies in the 19th century is that woman who's got her hand off to the side like this, who is holding the ball of thread. She's on the right. Okay. And that gesture of her arm reaching out in front. I have almost every major 19th century who went through Spain trying to get that same gesture. Oh, that and doesn't that surprise me. That doesn't surprise what me. What is it about that? What is it about her figure leaning forward in that gesture that you think fascinated those artists? Well, when you said that the whole that the painting was the most copied painting, I thought you meant the entire painting, and I was sort of confused as why as to why that would be. But that one figure, on the other hand, I could see why. Um, I, I, you think it's the gesture? I, I think it's a combination of the gesture. Uh, if I were to copy this, this is what I would want to learn from it. One is the gesture. Um, two is the beautiful flesh tones. Just beautiful. And the sensitive attention to value. I mean, yeah. those are the three things that I would be really looking I at. I think it's beautiful how he's got the small, the, that, that top part where her scapulas come together. Mm -hmm. Almost. Where she's leaning forward and you can see that she's sitting on that that bench, that bench, by the way, is a masterpiece in shadow and light that she's sitting yeah, on. Yeah, that bench right? is cool. I mean, yeah. Look at that. And then she's leaning forward, even though she's straddling it. Her body is slightly turned. Her her knee, her left knee is kind of bent inwards as she's reaching out to make sure that string isn't tangled and it's getting spun on that device. Yeah. And, and then the brilliance of... The figure in the middle ground 
that's dark, but you can see all that gesture. Yeah. And, I just want to get closer look at this. Yeah, so it's not a very big figure, I would assume. No, this is not nearly as big as La it's you know, it's a big size. It's not as big as Las Meninas. He worked on it five times longer. Hmm. Um, and who knows if that was because I mean, by this time in Velasquez's career, he is so taken up with duties as a member of the royal household that he's dedicating less and less time to painting. Which is why one of the great tragedies of Velasquez is that we only have 110 of his works, and that he was so unproductive compared to other artists because he was more and more doing administrative things that paid him better, that put him in close contact with power, and he's doing less and less painting. Hmm. But the paintings that he does work on, he's very careful about. And he worked on this for five years. He dies in, I think, 1661, and this is the last painting he works on. And there, when you look at some of the great choices, I mean, look at how it's very uh, bright in the foreground with very bright whites. And then you get to the middle ground and everything gets darker and in shadow. And then it gets very bright in the background again. And you have the figures which are in a very complicated circular composition. One on the left who's looking inwards at the tapestry. And then you see the two tapestry figures which are in the middle. And then you see two ladies in waiting on the right who are surrounding it in a circle who are looking at it. And one of those ladies in waiting on the right is looking back at the commoners weaving. So he also has a very complicated composition of pulling you from the foreground into the middle ground, into the background, and then back into the foreground by doing that whole circle thing again that he does, right? It's super complicated. Yeah. And you know what but else I noticed? But, Have you ever noticed this? How he suggests the, mo the spinning of the wheel? Or am I just imagining things? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes. Look at that. It it's is like so he's suggesting that it's, move and mo that it's moving and even the string is vibrating. Have you, have you seen the cat yet? Oh no, I didn't notice the cat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's pretty, that's brilliant. It is, it is to me, this is this is the one that everybody copied and where if you were a student and you were going to France, this was in guidebooks for artists. Hmm. Go see Las Meninas. And not Las Meninas, Las Hilanderas, the weavers. They didn't say see Las Meninas, the other one that we just looked at. So in the 19th century, what happens is, and this is a longer story, but it's worth giving a highlight to it, is that in 1823, um, Louis Philippe, the king of France, opens up the Spanish galleries in the Louvre. And the Spanish galleries bring one or two Velazquez paintings um, to, to the artists who are all working in France. And that's like De La Roche and Ang. And they're all used to seeing Italian painting. And none of them are used to seeing Spanish painting. None of them, right? Mm -hmm. And Italian painting is very gems, gemstone colored. It's very like lapis lazuli blue, bright white. Um, very much looks like scenery painting of figure on the right side. Everything is gestural in a way that like, it looks like it's, it's, it's very rote and precise. And almost all Italian painting is done with a careful drawing process.
process that introduces color at the end, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And they see what Spanish painting is, and they think, holy crap, there's another way. Mm. And that is when um, Courbet and Manet and um, and and then um, Leon Bonat and Carolus Duran, which become the teachers of the sergeants and the Eakins and the others start saying, we're going to do value painting instead. We're going to paint with big brushes right onto the canvas and get more. And we're going to, and we're going to, we're going to work with a more restricted palette. And then we're going to get into the details on the canvas. We're not going to do a whole bunch of drawings first. Maybe we'll do some. There are various levels that they adopt because they're trying to figure out like how do the Spanish do what they're doing? And it's funny that even the Spanish don't know how Velasquez does it, right? So, but the Spanish keep telling themselves, we're the inheritors of this tradition. Even though they're all being taught the French technique, they start mimicking Velasquez by doing brown underpainting. And then um, instead of using lapis lazuli, they use cobalt blue or mm. smalt, that is. It's called smalt. They use smalt. They use reds. They they start dumbing down their whites a little bit. And in the 19th century, you get this. And, and part of the problem, too, is that these paintings are dirty. They haven't been cleaned. And so everybody thinks that Velasquez didn't use any lead white, that he just used like a, a lighter brown to do her blouse. And if you were to look at Soroya's painting, his copy, or, or um, even um, Manet's copy of this painting, her blouse looks yellow or brown because they're looking at a dirty Velasquez painting. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But but you see, but but what shines through is even though the colors don't shine through, the general values do. Yeah. Because they can see that all of it got dirty, but it's still the brightest part was her blouse on the right. Right, the relationships are still the same. The relationships are still the same because it all got dirty to the same level. Right. Right? So you're, I mean, it's... Velasquez to me, let's let's go to my last image. Okay. Which to me is my favorite Velasquez of all time. It's just the greatest religious painting in the history of the world. <laughs> this one here? Nope. Nope. It's the crucifixion. Oh, the last image. I thought you meant the previous image. Okay. No, sorry. Careful, man. I'm painting the crucifixion right now. So this is your second favorite. I... <laughs> okay. <laughs> just kidding. So... He does this. This is a huge painting. It's about eight feet tall. Yeah. And um, it is, to me, this is what epitomizes what makes Velasquez, if not the greatest artist, one of the greatest artists of all time, is that he knows when to stop. He knows when to draw your attention to things. He knows how to simplify moments. Here is the crucifixion. And he has a very um, flat background that is, I mean, background makes that figure absolutely etched into the can. It, 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 it makes the figure come out. Yeah. Right? You know what's strange about this? I agree. This is, this is one of my, definitely one of my top two or three. But what's strange about this is that a lot of painters would have painted Christ and then painted a background, so to speak, like not 
But what I mean is the background wouldn't have been part of the space. It's just yes. filling, filling the scene. But he, it's, it's as though he put the cross against a piece of drapery because the model and the cross are casting a shadow onto the background. Yeah. Yeah. He, That's and, really and you know really what that unusual. What it would have been like is this was in a fairly small space that it was commissioned for. Mm -hmm. And Velasquez, if you remember, his teacher painted crucifixion sculptures. And so if you were in Spain and you went into a physical church or into a small um, chapel that was dedicated, you would you would see sculptures more than you'd see paintings in that space. Right. And it's almost as if he's made it look like a sculpture. Yeah. Rather than he's as if he's trying to make it look like you're on Golgotha looking at the moment. You're looking at a sculpture instead, right? Yeah, that's a good and way that of putting has it. An, it has an interesting effect because then when you walk into this space, it focuses everything on this figure. You get rid of the narrative of being on Golgotha. And yes, Velasquez is often... Um, um, observational to the point of it feeling like you're looking at dirty fingernails sometimes, right? But this is an idealized figure in so many ways. I mean, look at how um, um, this does not look like a really traumatized body. No. If you were to take away the blood, if you were to take away the blood, it would be a beautiful Grecian sculpture, right? Except for the his skin looks like he's almost dead. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's enough of that. Um, I don't know what they used today, but they used burnt umber then. Yeah. Were, and, and they would do it underneath the, um, the, the skin and, and notice, I think that that also is enhanced by the green background. That's a very similar green color. Well, he's right? not using, that, he's not using, it's monochromatic. He's not putting, he's not using warms and cools the way you would in living flesh and putting, putting reds right. in the nose and reds you know, uh, in the knees and in the toes and in the fingers and so on and so forth. So it's as though the blood is drained out of his body. And if you go into the finger on the left-hand side, his right hand, our left-hand side, yeah. and you look up close um, to that hand, Whoops. There are no... Which one? The one on our left? The one or? on the, our left, his, his, the right of the figure, the right-hand side of the figure. Okay. Our left-hand side. Yeah. Notice how he deliberately doesn't have edges on those fingers. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, no um, fingernails. It's that, <laughs> he does that a lot where um, there, there are very few... And that's something that in the 19th century they pick on they pick up on with Velasquez because mm -hmm. they've been doing this tradition of, and this is where the impressionists and the, the, the science of observation and Velasquez really has a huge influence on people is they realize that this Italian way of drawing and the French school of drawing in the, in those years in the first part of the 19th century was focused on having very clean lines mm -hmm. and edges to everything. And then a beautiful interior of the figure, which was modeled with transitions and what they start noticing with Velasquez and with these Spanish painters is there are there are very few clean lines on anything. Everything is is um, is is uh, is is a little off, and that's where you get people like it. Even comes down to us with people like William Whitaker, 
hmm. right? That artist who who is always advocating, you know, you don't you want to you want to bleed things into one another because that's how the eye sees, right? This is this is one of Velasquez's huge contributions, which he didn't understand the science of why the eye actually completes what it's seen in the brain, right? What we're seeing is partially what we're actually seeing, but mostly completed in the brain. Yeah. That is how the brain works when it sees things, right? Mm -hmm. That's the neurology of visual imagery. And that French and Italian model of having very strong lines around everything, mm -hmm. that's not how the brain works. And Velasquez somehow broke free of that. But he also in, 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 encapsulates a tradition of idealizing the figures in really interesting. I mean, look at how how beautiful that torso is and how the weight is distributed on those feet, yeah. right? There's a lot of fudging of how the figure actually works here, but there's also observation too. How he simplified those calves and the and the front of those those legs at the bottom and then the knees. I mean, this is a guy who he's gone from observing things in real life going to Rome and copying statues and coming and seeing Rubens and seeing all this work. And then he comes back from all of that. And he somehow is this alien mix of, of the classical tradition and naturalism. Hmm. I don't know how he does it. And I don't know if you can duplicate. It. I, don't I don't know, know how he learned it, it and how, I mean, it's, it's like he was an artist in a desert and somehow he figured it out. I don't know how he did it either, but I mean, to me, this is the perfect painting. I don't know how you beat this painting with anything. I don't know how you beat this painting. Do you know um, where it's hanging? It's currently in the Prado. And I, I, it's it's one of those paintings that I haven't spent a lot of time um, studying. It's history. I've read it a few times because I don't know if you're like this, but it's it's especially this way as an art historian. Sometimes you see a painting and you have an emotional reaction to it or and you don't want to have an intellectual discussion breaking down why you feel that way about it. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I've, I've overanalyzed so many paintings in my life. This is one of those paintings that I guard very carefully because regardless of how I feel on a religious faith level, this painting, there's just something so. He, he knew when to stop. Yeah. He knew how far to take it and then when to stop. It's not overpainted. It's not underpainted. It and when you see it in real life, and Jeff, you and I are going to go to Spain one of these days, and we're going to stand in front of this painting, and we're going to cry, and oh, we're going no to like joke. shake our heads and totally forget about the rest of the world. Not necessarily because it's Christ, but just because it's a painting that achieves something that rarely gets achieved. It's not showing off. It's it's just perfect. It's perfect. So where was it intended for? Where, where was its original hanging spot? It was intended for um, one of the court members who was a, a patron to Velasquez commissioned it for his private chapel. Oh, for a chapel. So because the other thing yeah. that's wonderful about this idea of the background that's actually in the painting where the shadow cast on it is if you hang this on a wall, it suggests that the crucifixion is happening in the chapel. I know, I know. Yeah, right? which is crazy. It's like, it's like it is. A, it is the most. Oh, it is so crazy. It's a brilliant idea. I wish I'd thought of it. 
<clears throat> well, I mean, you can you can use it. Oh, I can borrow it, but <laughs> I can borrow it. But it's just, yeah. I mean, I'm imagining coming into a chapel and seeing this, and it would feel like you were there with Christ on the cross. So, Velasquez does this painting about the same time he does the surrender of Breda with that horse mm -hmm. and all of those other things. Mm -hmm. And you can just imagine he has a lot of free reign in this one, yeah. but he's dictated to with the other one. And if you had to say side by side that they were the same artist, that very busy monumental canvas with the horses, the people, the map, the clouds, the spears, and all of that, and say which of the two paintings is more accomplished. I prefer this to one. To me, I would, I would choose this one any day of the week. The other one was, I'm sure, something that his contemporaries thought was a greater accomplishment. But to me, it's, 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 it, this one to me is, I love Las Meninas. I love the, the weavers that we saw. I love all of Velasquez's paintings. But for me, this is the Velasquez painting that encapsulates everything that makes Velasquez great. It's yeah. his observation of reality, his idealization where it matters, his not painting too much, mm -hmm. right? And his absolute immediacy, making everything feel immediate to you as the viewer, right? It's, and, and by the way, I think that there's some exaggeration in the math here, potentially. I mean, when you're looking at his feet and how they sit on that thing, Oh, that, no, that no, print? they, they will. I assumed that that was sloped downward. That's how it would have, the, a lot of historians think it would have been is the, is, it? is that that thing that they stand on would have been sloped down. Oh, that's interesting. So I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, then, that's that, my um, understanding. And that's actually how I'm painting it as well. But that's uh, a lot of historians say that that's how they would have been crucified. It wasn't a flat block. It was sloped down. And then the other thing about this too, is how you compare this to the very loud and raucous nature of a, of a Rubens, who was the top painter at the time. Oh yeah, right? this is- Rubens, yeah. Rubens also had very quiet contemplative work. So I don't want to knock him too much, but- No, I like his work, but yeah. I, Velasquez, I just, his, his uh, attention to the subtleties in the figure and the anatomy of the figure is just, yeah, second to none. So so here's the real tragedy is that Velasquez, um, he is in his early 60s. He's born in 1599. I think he dies in 1664. And so he went in 63. He was in good health until he is, he's a member of, he's, he's part of the forward team whenever the king with his entourage would travel somewhere. And Velasquez is going um, to prepare the next place where the king is staying. And he travels through a rainstorm catches pneumonia, dies. That's, a That's how he dies. And, and the last painting he does is that painting we were looking at before of the weavers. Mm. And he, the only, um, the only real student, I think that we really recognize today, maybe that's not true, but the one that we really recognize today as probably his greatest student is Juan de Pareja. And you'll know who that is because he is the black, um, portrait that's at the Metropolitan Museum that's painted by Velasquez. Oh, really? That was um, a portrait Velasquez did of Juan de Pareja. Juan de Pareja was brought into the royal household, we're not entirely sure, but as a slave. And then Velasquez trains him to be a painter and frees him. 
Wow. And then Juan de Pareja has his own career as a portraitist to royals and doing religious pieces. And there are a few works by Pareja which are really good and carry on Velázquez's tradition. But what largely happens is, is that Velázquez dies, people adopt a totally different style in the court that becomes fashionable, and he gets forgotten about until 200 years later by the rest of the world. And then the, the French court opens up the, the Louvre, shows the, the, they see a few works by him in, this, in the Louvre that had been stolen by Napoleon when he comes to Spain, and they say, well, let's go down there. Everybody starts going to Spain to see Velazquez. And even right now, if we went to Washington, D.C., I'm planning on going at the beginning of the year, there is a uh, exhibition called Sargent in Spain. Because Sargent's, Sargent is the second generation of the French who are obsessed with Velazquez. Hmm. And the thing that they're obsessed with is they don't know where this naturalism comes from. And we still don't know. I mean, if we went to the beginning of this lecture, which is comparing... Velasquez to his master, mm -hmm. his master is, is very rigid and linear um, and, and has a different priority. But then you, you know, yeah, and it's nice to compare religious to religious here too. I mean, it's different oh, yeah. obviously, yeah. but Oh my gosh, the difference. I know, I know. And it's, it's almost like, and there, and in my opinion, the 19th century re rarely reaches this level of quality. Um, to me, the best painters were often in the 17th century when Velazquez was alive. It's the Rembrandts, it's the Velazquez's, it's the Caravaggio's, it's the Rubens, it's the Franz Halls, who to me were doing, and the Vermeers, that were doing some of the best work in the history of art. And in the 19th century, they're trying to imitate it. And some, some people get there. Um, to me, I don't know anybody who's beaten this painting, in my well, opinion. And then, like we talked about with, when we had the Soroya conversation, the difference, too, is that he's doing naturalism before the camera. And, then, and the camera was such a huge influence on the naturalist movement in the 19th century. So it's, he's way, to me, that's way more incredible. Yeah. Like, how is he doing it? Soroya never felt like he got close to Velasquez. He said, I mean, and, and think of how, uh, think of that for a second. Soroya yeah. probably did 15,000 paintings in his lifetime. No way. And, and, and um, he says near the end of his life, I still didn't get close to as good as Velasquez is. Well, that's why he was so good. He was humble. I mean, cause that, I, don't I don't agree I'm, with that I'm, at all. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with it either, and I don't know if Velasquez would agree with it. But it does tell you how monumental the image of Velasquez was yeah. in the minds yeah. of his generation, because they looked and 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 they looked at paintings like this, and and they thought, you know, if I could just get there. Here's the thing, though, is that I think that every generation does this. Every one of us, um, uh, tries to. We have a hero from the past. And we put them on such a pedestal. Bouguereau is a really good example of this, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we'll talk about him at another time where we say, oh, no one was as, ever as good as Bouguereau. Well, I mean, Bouguereau was amazing. I prefer this image to Bouguereau. Yeah, right? I, do too. I prefer this to the best Bouguereau image. 
Is it fair to compare? No, no. it's not really fair to compare because they had very different goals, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Very different goals with the way that they did things. But, I mean, that's where when I started this and said I think that Velasquez is the greatest artist of all time, I think it's because he's my favorite of all time because right. of the things we've talked about. And one of the reasons he's my favorite is because you can see the journey he went through in his works. And there's so few works. And we went from those very kind of clumsy images in the beginning, which were still very strong in the way they were observed, to images where he's really pushing to do multifigural work, but he's not confident enough to separate out the figures, but he still makes them work, right? Mm -hmm. And then he goes, then he shows off, and then he goes from a point where he's no longer showing off to where he's just trying to tell an amazing story. And then everything becomes subjected to telling the story, not just showing off. So he's no longer having to, you know, make it look like, oh, look, I can do five full figures that are all standing equidistant from one another at differing angles with different skin tones. Now he's just making you feel like you're there. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a Velasquez fanboy. I, I, I think if, uh, if I had to choose one artist to meet or one time in the history of the world, when I would like to just go back and visit, I would show up the year that Rubens and Velasquez are painting together. Oh, could you imagine being in this, a fly on the wall in the studio when he was doing that? I mean, to me, that would be the greatest movie that ever existed. Yeah, that, that would be incredible. And I would make the argument when, you know, back to that idea that Soroya had that he was never, he could never compete with Velasquez. I think there's an argument to be made. I don't know if I, I, I would make this argument, but there's an argument to be made that Velasquez was the greatest painter given in, in for his own time. Yeah, because of what—that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah, too. for his own time, because he and his own place. I mean, where he was, who his contemporaries were in his region. I feel like he rose so far above. It's like what. How, how, where did you come from? I know, and, and and I have no idea where it came from. I have no idea. It's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I, I'm really grateful that you invited me to, to come speak again on the podcast. And uh, I, I'm glad, I'm glad he let me choose my own. I was a little selfish, <laughs> but I hope it was worth, worthwhile picking on Velasquez. Because even though he's very distant from us mm-hmm. as artists working today, I think the journey that he went through personally is very, um, it's clear to see how he progressed over time. And it's instructive to see that too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Micah, you, you know, you're a huge asset to this podcast and thanks for donating your time and doing this again and absolutely pick your own next time too. So I'm excited to, I'm excited to uh, hear who you decide to bring next time. Thanks buddy. I appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to the Undraped Artist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, subscribe. And if you could, leave a comment or review. That really helps the channel. Please share the show with your friends. And if you're feeling generous, consider a monthly donation at theundrapedartist.com. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next week.